Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter 22, After the Burial. Patches of bright blue sky were beginning to appear over the castle turrets. But these signs of approaching summer did not lift Harry's mood. He had been thwarted, both in his attempts to find out what Malfoy was doing. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekayo. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hey, Casper, just a week from tomorrow, I am flying into where our local group is, Columbia, South Carolina. Well, you will be in the city of the Soda City Fizzing Wisbies. And if you live in the Columbia area, definitely go see Vanessa talk because she's going to be talking about Harry Potter, treating it as a sacred text, all our favorite things. And you should also join the Soda City Fizzing Wisbies. You can join this sacred reading group and every reading group around the world by going to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups. So a couple of months ago, as I've talked about before on the podcast, I went out to dinner with a friend and we both had a list of people who we just didn't feel quite right about, you know, that we felt like individually we were each out of right relationship with and that we were going to help each other go through that list of people and try and find a way back into right relationship. And for some of them, you know, it involved emailing or, or a phone call, maybe an apology or a question. For some people where it wasn't right to be in touch with them, it was to send them sort of loving, kindness, meditation, prayer. But for one of them, I had a very specific thing that I wanted to hear from them. Like, I really wanted to hear an apology from them. And it wasn't even a big thing. It was just something that had really frustrated me. But I knew that if I called them and asked them to apologize, it just wouldn't work. And, and so we decided to do a little role play. 
So after the soup had arrived and we were midway through our main course, I kind of closed my eyes and put like you do with a kid, right? I put my hand to my ear as if it was a phone. And I was like, hello. And I'll just use the name Sarah. Like, hello, Sarah. And my friend on the other side of the table picked up her imaginary phone was like, oh, hi, Casper. Um, Yeah, what's up? And we just proceeded to have like a legitimate 20 minute long conversation, you know, because I told my friend everything that I'd wanted to hear in this conversation. She was able to say it all. And I had my eyes closed and I was imagining that this was a genuine conversation. Honestly, it was amazing. Every frustration I felt just melted away. Any harboring resentment that was still there just melted away. And when I hung up my imaginary phone, I really felt transformed. And on the one hand, it was kind of a silly, fun thing. But on the other hand, I genuinely am amazed by how little bitterness I feel after that experience. And as we're reading this chapter through this theme of bitterness, I was just thinking how I want to know what else in my life I'm still bitter about that could be like wiped clean with some imaginative, playful exercise that maybe somehow tricks my brain. And just how unnecessary bitterness is, because it's not like I was doing anything about it. It wasn't serving any function. It was just sitting there like a dog poop on my doorstep that I looked at every day when I went outside. And I want to just think about when we see bitterness in this chapter, is it necessary? Is it useful? And how might it disappear with some playful telephone games in a restaurant? I find that story incredibly compelling. And I just can think of so many people who I am bitter toward, who, like, I have to be in relationship with, and it, like, just is the way it is. And I would love if you could help me figure out ways out of it. But I just think bitterness might be one of those, like, gross feelings that we all have and have to deal with. But this is not my therapy session, so let's instead talk about it in terms of the characters in this chapter. And our 30-second recap starts, my friend, with you. Three, two, one, go. So spring has come, and um, Harry, Hermione, and Ron get a letter from Hagrid that Aragog has died, and can they please come down to um, the funeral? And Hermione is like, oh, my God, no, you are so out of touch with reality. And then um, Ron and Hermione go to take their apparition test, and Harry is like, fine, I'm going to take Felix Felicis to go and get this memory out of Slughorn. And he goes, and he's lucky all the way down, and Slughorn goes to the funeral with him for Aragog, and he agrees to give Harry his memory. I picked it up there at the end. I don't know why I started so casual. I was like, (laughs) whatever. And then towards the end, I was like, oh, 30 seconds isn't a lot of time. (laughs) I forgot. Okay, can you fill in some holes for us, please? Yes, bring it on. On your mark, get set, go. So um, Harry takes Felix Felicis and suddenly it's like, totally breaks his word about going to like, get the memory from Slughorn. It's like, oh, I'm going to go see Hagrid now. And, and um, Ron and Hermione are like, why are you doing that? It's such a stupid thing to get detention for. Um, and he goes um, uh, outside and the door is unlocked. How happily. And then he's like, oh, I think I should go um, to um, uh, the, the place where the plants grow. And then uh, that's where Slughorn is. And he's uh, wanting things. And he's like, oh, come with me because there's special things that you can get that are worth lots of money. And then it's the three-person buddy movie we've always wanted. <laughs> Hagrid, Slughorn, and Harry. (laughs) Where do you want to start? I I think that we really see bitterness like starting at the very beginning of this chapter in what I thought was sort of an out-of-character reaction of Hermione. 
which is Harry receives this letter. He thinks it's from Dumbledore, and it turns out that it's from Hagrid and that it's to him, Ron, and Hermione saying, Aragog has died. I know you're not allowed out after dark, but I think that that's the right time to bury Aragog. Can you please come and help me bury him? And it's covered in, like, tears. I mean, this is clearly a desperate plea. Right. And Hermione is like, no. And not only no, but I resent that he's asking. And she is, like, really upset about it. And I think what was interesting to me about it is that it felt like this was a slight bitterness that had been building up over years. Because mm. mm. I think her reaction is disproportionate and incredibly uncompassionate. At minimum, sending a letter back down being like, Hagrid, I'm so sorry for your loss. Any number of steps in between could be taken. But I feel like there is just this, like, slow, corroding anger that has been, you know, like 10% on Norbert and then, like, another 20% on Buckbeak. Just, like, this slow accumulation of tiny resentments over time have blown up into a full-fledged bitterness at this point where she's just, like, done. Right. The, the thing that it reminded me of, just before I got married, I had a friend who said to me, you know, it'll be strange. You'll have someone at your wedding who you would never think would be there. And you'll have someone who you can't imagine your wedding day without who won't be there. So when that happened, it was so calming for me because I felt like, because someone had kind of given me that framework of like, someone will be there, someone won't be there. I was like, oh, this is the person who wasn't there. And and that made it more okay. And, and I just don't think Hermione's maybe had any funerals in her life before, right? Like she doesn't have a framework in which this experience of Hagrid's loss can fit in so that it makes sense. Because all the only framework she has is safety first, follow the rules to some extent. And, and so th this invitation to come to a funeral is just like, no. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I also think that had she gone and seen Hagrid's reaction to how grateful he was for Harry to come, it would have entirely changed her mind. Do you, do you really think so? Because what is Hagrid and Hermione's relationship? I mean, they are definitely, if it were not for Harry, they would not have become friends. They are legitimately friends on their own now, though. Hermione in this book isn't waiting for the boys when they get back from Christmas because she was down visiting Hagrid. I think Hagrid and Hermione have legitimately become friends in their own right at this point. Mm. No, I think it's quite cruel of her. I agree with the sentiment. I think that Hagrid is again asking children who should be in his care to put themselves right. in danger and to take care of him. And I think that is boundary crossing and entirely inappropriate. And a different version of this letter could have been like, I just want to let you know that Aragog has died. I will be burying him. I understand if you can't make it. I agree with Hermione. I just think that without a little bit of built up bitterness, she would have gone. She does more dangerous things all the time. She's willing to break rules for dumb reasons all the time. <laughs> but like, I think this is just like, she's like, I can't help you. So what do you want from me? And it's funny because elsewhere in the chapter, Hermione actually exhibits like a total lack of bitterness. There's there's this great moment where Harry says, okay, well, I'm going to go try and talk to Slughorn for the 54th time, you know, 54th time lucky. And Ron is the one who suggests, oh, lucky, yes, you should use Felix Felices. And 
in some ways, this is a total role reversal, right? Because usually Hermione is the clever one. Hermione has the bright ideas or Harry has the kind of like strategic, brave, wild plan. And here it's Ron who suggests a really good idea. And Hermione is stunned, but she's not at all bitter. Like she's not at all resentful. And, you know, in the same way that you would expect people who fulfill their roles when someone else takes it, right? Like there's a little sting in it sometimes. You're like, no, but I'm the one who does the dog thing. Or like, I'm the one who loves the Avril Lavigne back catalog. And Hermione is like totally chill. So it's it's not like she's a bitter person inherently, but there's something about this moment with Hagrid that just, I think you're right. It's not actually about this moment. It's about everything that's gone before. I'm also wondering about cycles of bitterness. If like, you let it build up, let it build up, and then you have, like, a big confrontation and, like, discussion about it and, like, sort of flush everything out. And I feel like Ron and Hermione have just gone through a big fight, even though they haven't actually talked about anything, but they've sort of, like, flushed their system of anger toward each other. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if she's just, like, in a more compassionate place with Ron right now and hasn't had that moment with Hagrid I find that I can have total patience for someone who's late. But if I'm annoyed with them for other things and then they're late, I'm like, three minutes? That is three minutes of disrespect. (laughs) But, I mean, that's honestly the whole funeral scene. It's it's sad on a number of levels. Sad first because Slughorn is there just to take something, right? Like we see him extracting this venom from Aragog while Hagrid is crying and not paying attention. And then, you know, there's this kind of growing drunkenness between Slughorn and Hagrid. And the thing that I was most sad about is Slughorn says these beautiful words, right? He really has a sort of ministerial quality at the graveside of lifting up, you know, the ways in which Aragog was loved and and meant so much to Hagrid. But we never get to hear Hagrid share his words. And at the beginning of the chapter, Hagrid says that that's what he wants to do. And he's kind of robbed of this moment. And so I can imagine in a few days' time... Actually, Hagrid might be bitter because he didn't get to say what he had wanted to say because he's manipulated and used. You know, even even Harry wasn't planning to come until this liquid luck told him that he should be there. I don't know. I I was left with a bitter taste in my mouth after reading the chapter and just thinking about that. I don't know. Does it stay insincere all the way through the chapter, do you think? Or, Or do you think Harry and Slughorn in the end actually are sincere about their friendship with Hagrid and their not necessarily grief, but at least their honoring of Aragog? Oh, I don't think either of them care about Aragog at all, right? Slughorn keeps sort of eyeing Hagrid's place for other things that are valuable. I think that Slughorn is always someone who's up for company and is up for imbibing alcohol in company. But, like, I don't think that there is a single selfless reason that he is there. I think for Harry, Harry is on the Felix Felicis, so I don't think that it would be, like, fair to really— get to the bottom of what's going on with him. (laughs) But I do understand what you're saying about, you know, a funeral is supposed to be a cathartic thing. Mm. And so I think that your insight is very wise that it is possible in a few days that Hagrid will be like, the catharsis didn't happen. And he might not be able to articulate to himself why, but like just that he hadn't actually been given the opportunity to grieve. And then the other thing that I would think would create some bitterness in Hagrid is that I just got impressed with Hagrid that he kept taking care of Aragog, even though his relationship with Aragog is what allowed him to become a scapegoat for Voldemort. Right. And Hagrid's lack of bitterness towards Aragog. And therefore, 
I was just wondering if this death might bring up some renewed bitterness about the way that he was so horribly used by Voldemort and by the Ministry of Magic to make sure that this got pinned on someone. And again, you know, I, I don't blame Ron and Hermione because they don't know all of this, but I think that it is possible that that is part of why he wants a real funeral for Aragog. You know, I, mm. it's possible that he has began to project certain traumas of his life or not wanted his taking care of Aragog to be in vain. We never know what meaning is ascribed to things for people. And so I wonder if part of what he's bearing is the life that he could have lived if he hadn't brought Aragog into Hogwarts. I mean, that also explains why he doesn't invite other humans. Like there's something in Hagrid that just does better with magical creatures, right? Like he, I think he feels more understood. He feels ironically safer. And well, maybe it's not so ironic because actually wizards have been incredibly dangerous for him. They've manipulated him. They've expelled him. I think he, there's a safety that he feels in the natural world, which is also why he always undermines the risk that other people experience. But to think that this is this is a moment actually where he's not necessarily coming to terms with it, but where he's being faced with the enormity of this life that he's been forced into and then kind of chosen also again. Which is so interesting to compare with Harry, right? Because Harry, when he is manipulating Slughorn to give him the memory is very smart about how to tell the story of his loss. There was just something interesting about comparing the loss of Aragog with Hagrid and then comparing that with the loss of Lillian James to Harry, who's being very clinical with it. I, I don't know, that just really stood out to me. And yet there's no bitterness in the telling of, of Voldemort's murder of his parents in this moment because he's using it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think he's exploiting a bitterness, right? Right. He's right. like, and you're part of the reason why they're dead. Yes. I yes. mean, it's a very bitter line that finally convinces Slughorn, actually, right? Of like, my mother gave her life. Will you not right. give me a memory? Like that, to me, does reek of bitterness, of a resentment, of a like, how dare you even say you loved her? Mm. You won't honor her. And I, I mean, the other moment now, you know, now that we're here, the big moment of bitterness that I saw is I think that Slughorn behaves quite bitterly toward Harry when he says, like, stop, I don't want to hear this, right? Mm. Like, this, there's this, like, how dare you make me confront this? How dare you torture me with details? Which is a brazen thing to say to, mm -hmm. like, a victim of the crime, right? It is something that I feel when I, like, go to a horror movie, right? I'm like, why are you making me feel this way? But if somebody is telling me a story about their suffering, right. I can't imagine reacting right. with, like, how dare you tell me when you right. survived it. Like, it's just, it's an incredibly bitter, brutal sentiment. And I was wondering how he got the audacity to say that to this child victim and the only thing I can think is shame. It is, you are making me feel complicit. And I, like, resent that complicity. Like, this anger at having to reckon with something that you feel shame about. I mean, stepping back and just looking at this whole scene, there's something in this chapter about two men who love monsters. You have Hagrid with these, with Aragog, and you have Slughorn with Tom Riddle, the pre-Voldemort Tom Riddle, because that wasn't just a, 
an indulgence, right? I, I think he saw in Riddle power. He saw in Riddle status and and excellence and the glimmer of fame. And I think there's something in Hagrid that admired Aragog in the same way, right? Like Aragog's not going to get expelled from a school because Aragog runs the school, right? And that there's something about two people who are look, yeah, who've loved these monstrous strong things that have died and are now sitting with the consequences, both alone in a drunken stupor. I love that. But not only are they two men who loved monsters, but they are two men who have been brought low by their love of those monsters. Yeah. Right? right. Like Slughorn has just loathed himself for all this time. And Hagrid was made easier as a scapegoat for it mm. and has always been considered a sort of like um, disrepute for his love of monsters. But I think that there's something beautiful about loving monsters. So I don't like that we're given these two men who have been punished for their love of monsters, mm. which does to some extent make this moment more beautiful, even if Slughorn is looking for ways to exploit Hagrid. I think some catharsis is happening for Hagrid. I hope so. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Can I just talk about a really sad moment in the chapter? Which is when Slughorn says, I'm sorry, because he thinks Hagrid is, like, offended by his singing voice. <laughs> but the, the whole scene is kind of steeped in sadness because at the end, Slughorn is singing like, oh, yes, to unicorn hairs, to ten galleons. I mean, he's literally saying the price of what he thinks this gift is going to fetch when he sells it again. It's like receiving a present and being like, e- eBay, right? Like Store credit. Yeah, exactly. Like, no one wants to hear that. 
oh, it's the whole thing is just desperately sad. And the image that I was left with at the end of this chapter, which I don't know how this fits in with the theme of bitterness, but so much of this whole book and, and this chapter specifically are about getting this memory. And Slughorn at the end puts his wand to his temple, takes out the memory, and it looks just like the unicorn hair that they've been singing about. And so we hear the price of the unicorn hair, but there's also a price of this memory that Slughorn knows Harry's going to take that straight to Dumbledore. But I, I don't know how bitterness comes into that, but there was such a match there that's sort of foreshadowing that really struck me. So what I'm reminded of is the story of Miriam, because Miriam is my middle name, and it means like a sea of bitterness. Miriam is Moses's sister, and all of the Jewish boys have been ordered to be killed because Pharaoh has had a prophecy told to him that a Jewish usurper will come. And so Miriam puts Moses, her baby brother, into a bassinet and floats him on a river. And so it's a sea of bitterness because Miriam is forced into the situation in which she has to give up her own brother. And a synonym within Hebrew for that bitterness is sorrow, which I think of as so interesting because to me, in like American colloquialism, there's an idea of bitterness as almost being petty, right? Like, oh, she's just bitter. But in Hebrew, it has to do with sorrow. And I I see that with Slughorn's bitterness, right, of his, like, don't confront me with this crime. I I don't see it with Hermione's form of bitterness. So I'm wondering if you think that does translate into our English, like, Western understanding of bitterness. Do you think that bitterness does have something to do with sorrow? I mean— it's so striking, Vanessa, because the thing that I immediately think of just linguistically is how bitter often goes with tears, right? Like she wept bitter tears or he wept bitter tears. Like there is something that does absolutely match. And I mean, in this context, I think the whole scene that we see in Hagrid's hut is sad. Like no one there, even though Harry is like liquid luck, what he is saying to Slughorn is I am the chosen one. Even though it's it's manipulative, he's embracing this true and sad fact about him so that all three of them are trapped. They can't get out of the life that they're now in. And there's there's something tragic about it. So maybe, maybe there's tragedy in bitterness as well. I, I love that reading. And I think, I mean, this is the beauty of being able to draw on other languages, right? It's like we, we look at a familiar concept, but with like an added flavor, which totally shapes it anew. And so I think I've been thinking about bitterness with a a menacing element. And yet actually what what you're revealing is something sad. And it makes me think of the story I told at the top of the chapter. Like I was frustrated with this person and and I was bitter about it, but actually underneath that, I was sad. I was sad that it hadn't hadn't worked out the way that we'd wanted to. And, And the bitterness was about where I was putting blame for that sadness, I think. So I love that. Yeah. That is so helpful that when I'm feeling bitter under it, I am feeling sad. Mm. I'm sad that this relationship can't be smoother. I'm sad, Mm -hmm. you know, at whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, also in Judaism, I mean, when we tell the story of Miriam and her her bitter river, her river of sorrow, is at Passover where you Mm. eat bitter herbs and you eat the bitter herb to remind you of the tears of slavery and then there is haroset, which is this like delicious 
fruity, nutty, like very sweet thing. And the great Rabbi Hillel said that we should actually not just eat these things individually, but as a third step, we should make what we now call a Hillel sandwich, (laughs) which is the maror and the haroset together, the bitterness and the sweetness together. And that even though we are now free, you can never take back the fact that there was slavery and that there is, you know, slavery still in the world. And I just, I I love that, that like we can make it better with sweetness, but it's important to hold on to the sorrow and the bitterness and not to just move on and forget it. Yeah, yeah. So, Casper, after all of my talk of Judaism, we are going to do a Jewish spiritual practice (laughs) called Pardes. I am going to have us pick a sentence at random for Mm. our four-step Jewish reading practice. And the sentence that I picked is, Well, now, this looks absolutely wonderful, said Slughorn an hour and a half later. Hmm. Well, that's good. So the shot of this sentence, the first step in Pardes, we ask ourselves what the intended meaning of the sentence is. And the intended meaning of the sentence is that it's sort of a reduced class because much of the class is off taking their apparition test. And so it's only Draco, Ernie, and Harry in the potions classroom. And so Slughorn is just like, make me something amusing. And this is what (laughs) Harry makes in the hour and a half. It is like the wizard equivalent of putting a video in like no teaching has happened and then an hour and a half passes and slughorn comes over to harry's which he's obviously made stealing the recipe from the half-blood prince and slughorn says it it looks absolutely wonderful and he's added that little sprig of mint to uh (laughs) counteract the after effects yeah and i would imagine that it would make it tastier just a little hint of binty freshness so step two of Pardes' remez, in which the way that we practice it is we take one word from the sentence and we track it through all seven books. So, Casper, I'll read the sentence and then you shout out which word you think we should follow. Okay. Well, now, this looks absolutely wonderful, said Slughorn an hour and a half later. There's a right answer. I want to go with the word hour. Oh, I would have gone with wonderful, but I like our, because one immediately comes to mind with our. Oh, which one? The time turner. Yeah. Right? Like Hermione is constantly going back an hour. I mean, the one I'm thinking of immediately is the very end of book seven, where in the Battle of Hogwarts, Voldemort says, you know, Harry has to come out alone, unarmed within the next hour um, by midnight. Um, And so this kind of ticking clock has this threatening feeling, but also of like hopelessness of of, like there's no other way. And of course, that's what Harry does willingly. And it's one of the things that Voldemort says in that sort of announcement is take an hour, like bury your dead. Right. In this book, I think it's it's one of the twins who Hermione gets the black eye And um, one of the twins is like, oh, just put this on and it'll be gone in an hour. I feel like sometimes an hour is like that where it can just be like a throwaway amount of time. Yeah. So time has this kind of it can be ominous or it can be frivolous. Uh, There's something about obviously time marches on whether we will or not. 
Would you just read the sentence again now that we've had this context of these other hours echoing through the text? Well, now, this looks absolutely wonderful, said Slughorn an hour and a half later. Yeah, I think what's really showing up for me with these other contexts is, you know, Slughorn says, oh, it's wonderful. But, well, it's wonderful for him. I mean, we know that for Draco, this hour and a half has been awful. All he wants to do is is working on his task. We know that this isn't serving any pedagogical purpose. I don't know. I, I guess like any moment in any hour can be a joy for one and a terror for other. Like there's just, we don't actually share the same time. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I love the way you said that. Which actually leads us very nicely to Drosh, right? Which is if this was our sentence, what lesson would we want to teach? And it's, well, now, this looks absolutely wonderful, said Slughorn, an hour and a half later. And I don't know why. I've been really struck lately about how fast time goes by now that I am older. I was going to say, are you getting older? (laughs) Yeah, because when I was a kid, right, time went by so slowly. And now I feel like I talk about 2021 as if it's tomorrow And it's just, you know, you start thinking in five and ten year increments. And Mm -hmm. so I think I would talk about the preciousness of an hour and how sometimes I think in all of our scheduling, we can just like talk our whole lives away in all of our planning. And I like forget what year I'm in because Mm -hmm. I spend so much time scheduling summer 2022. I'm just so not present. I'm already there. And so I think I would talk about how I I mean, this is like so cliche, but just the importance of at least spending some real time appreciating the here and now. What about you, Casper? What would you preach on? Would you read it for me one more time? Yes, happily. Well, now, this looks absolutely wonderful, said Slughorn an hour and a half later. I mean, we often joke, Vanessa, because we, we get to read every chapter through a different theme, you know. And and sometimes the conclusions we draw like jealousy could be good, could be bad. <laughs> Depends. Right. Like any any theme, we can read it one way or another. And I think the same is true with time. Right. Like if you're if you're desperately waiting for something to happen. Right. Every second takes forever. And sometimes right time just flies past. So the last step of Pardes is sewed, in which we ask ourselves if there is a secret that this process has helped emerge and unlock for us. Hmm. And the sentence is, well, now, this looks absolutely wonderful, said Slughorn an hour and a half later. So the sewed that occurred to me is that you only can test a potion Hmm. through its effectiveness which we sort of learn really disturbingly later in the chapter when Slughorn says, don't worry, this wine is fine. I had an elf test it. And it's so interesting to me that the only thing that Slughorn does is look at each of the potions. Like if you are teaching a cooking class, you have to take a sip of every stew or take a bite of every cookie We would be so frustrated with Great British Bake Off if it was like, well, that looks delicious. And then we didn't watch them eat it. And so I just think it's so interesting. I don't know. Maybe Ernie McMillan made a really powerful potion. And Slughorn just looks at it and it looks horrible. So that's the thing that I noticed is that he's only looking at these potions. That's funny because I was thinking about how 
what's what's behind the motivation of each of these three potions? You know, for Draco, it's desperation and just like, I want to get out of here, right? Like, let's do something that's adequate. We learn from the text that Ernie wants to upstage Harry, right? Like, he really wants to be better than Harry. This is his chance to be noticed in the classroom. And for Harry, it's really not Harry's work. Harry is just doing Snape's work. And no doubt Snape, at the beginning with potions, wanted to... I'm sure wanted to prove himself and wanted to, you know, whenever you're you're getting good at something, you want you want to show that you're good at it. But at this point, you know, the, the complexity of the potions that he's making at this point, I feel have gone into an art form. I, I feel like these potions are not just about beating other people, right? Like that little sprig of mint is just in the delight of the precision and the alchemy of potion making. And so I don't know, the thing that struck me with how wonderful is that Slughorn is really responding to a piece of art, not a piece of mechanics. Yeah, that, that there's something about beauty that showed up for me as Slughorn was walking around. Like he's responding, he's responding to something that's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. It's a it's a beautiful lie that Harry is peddling. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Casper. Mm, thanks for leading us. I love Pades. Me too. It's my favorite. No, but like it's really my favorite. <laughs> This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, it's time to hear from one of our listeners. And this week we have a voicemail from Eve. Hi, Vanessa, Casper and Ariana. I'm Eve and I discovered Harry Potter and the Sacred Text about six weeks ago. Being very late to this party means that I've been able to binge it during what has been a bleak time and reconnect in a new way to books that got me through another difficult time. 
I grew up with Harry, Ron and Hermione, coming of age at the same time as they did. They were my imaginary friends when I felt I had no real ones. I didn't have a good school experience. My secondary school had its own tribe of teenage Death Eaters who enacted prolonged abuse upon some of us who had not found our voice yet. Never speaking up or trying to save myself or others during that time left me with a feeling of disempowerment that followed me into adult life. Earlier this year, though, I didn't stop being afraid, but I did something brave. I spoke truth to power when I became aware my boss was abusing hers, bullying others and being untruthful. Some people didn't believe me. But like Harry in book five, which is where I'm up to in the podcast, I kept telling the truth. Although I was proud of myself, it wasn't without consequence for me. I wasn't fired, but I came to the conclusion that I had to resign and leave a job I loved. This, along with some other things, has triggered a major depressive episode. I am not okay. Vanessa, on the podcast, you speak about times when your depression stops you doing things you love. I relate. I love to read, write, cook and do yoga, but sometimes I can't. But I can, just about, move my thumb and click play and listen to an episode. I often feel desolate and bad about myself. Yet, hearing you describe the same experiences, an experience you, Casper, and the team, as people doing wonderful things, gives me something to hold on to. Maybe I can do worthwhile things too. You recently spoke about writing a story with a happy ending as a radically hopeful act and it's one I'm going to try. So far, all I've managed is to stare at a page and doodle, but I at least started with the intention and hope of a good outcome. Thank you for that, and for being my imaginary friends when I've needed them. Bye. Well, Eve, first of all, I am so sorry that the Dementors have come to visit you, and I, you know, I've said this before, and I'll say it in the same way again, which is something that helps me a lot when I'm depressed is remembering this too shall pass, that I've gotten out of other depressions and this one will pass. I imagine it as like an ocean wave that has like crashed over me. And if I can like just stay huddled down and safe, you know, the tide will pull back out and I will be able to stand again. But I also want to say that doodling on a blank page is a great way to fill it and that I really love writing as a sacred practice. The thing, I guess, the advice I want to give is, like, it it should be bad. Not only does it not have to be good, a first draft should be terrible because all of your bad ideas should be coming out now. And if they're not, then you're not, you're not trying enough because 90% of your ideas should be terrible. And just like all quitting means is that you tried something new— All that writing a bad first draft means is that you're trying brave new ideas, just like you tried to be and were brave with your boss. So write something so, so bad with a happy ending in mind and send it to us when you're done. Or send us a screenshot of your doodles if that's all you end up doing. Yeah, sending you love, Eve, and for everyone who, you know, is in a similar situation. We're glad that we're with you in the podcast. 
it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And I'm going to bless someone we actually don't learn the name of. Um, I love when you do that. I do. (laughs) Well, mostly because it really struck me how important this character is. We learn that there's two Montgomery sisters at Hogwarts and that their younger brother has been killed by a werewolf. Uh, Horrible. And the boy is killed because the mother refuses to help a Death Eater. And it just made me think of the horrible and impossible situations that people are put into and the the impossible choices people have to make in war. Uh, I've been listening to this wonderful podcast and it's put out, it's a podcast by Waging Nonviolence and it tells the story of many, many people involved in the little French village of Le Chambon-sur-Lignon. And what was wonderful to understand is how this village had become such a place of radical welcome. Um, they saved the lives of hundreds of Jews and of French resistance leaders during the war. And it just made me think of the mother of these Montgomery twins was was put into a situation which is impossible either way, right? You, you say yes to the Death Eater, you can't live with yourself. You say no to the Death Eater and it ends up that your son is killed. So just a, a blessing of compassion for, for anyone who's facing an impossible choice and especially people who are doing so in the context of war. How about you, Vanessa? I would like to bless Professor Sprout. We just haven't seen her in a while and we get like a little moment of her in this chapter. She's just so good at what she does and is working well with her colleagues and is complimenting Slughorn on the right time to like harvest this plant that he needs and is just like kind and generous and competent and I think that we have a perception in the world that when you are excellent at something, it is okay if you're a jerk. And so I'm just grateful for people who are excellent, like Professor Sprout, and are still pleasant and kind and generous and complimentary and think that that is just as important as being, you know, excellent at your job. So I'd like to offer a blessing for anyone who is excellent and still makes the time to be kind. Blessing is for you, Stephanie Paulsell. <laughs> You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this episode. Come and support us on Patreon, where there are amazing perks awaiting your delightful ears. And you can also leave us a review on iTunes or send us a voicemail. We love to hear from you. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 23, Horcruxes, through the theme of memory. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nedelman, and our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are distributed by PRX. We would like to thank Eve for her beautiful voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Hagrid, Slughorn, and Harry. I think it's totally like sideways, you know, that wine tasting movie. <laughs> totally. And in, in the magical world. <laughs> <laughs> it's like bridesmaids, but for people who love magical creatures. Yes. Uh, I can't believe I didn't see that before. <laughs> Kirsten Wig plays Slughorn. It's a stunning piece of acting. <laughs> <laughs> the prosthetic work is amazing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>